I think there's a lot that the world can learn from Botswana and the way we've coexisted with animals. We have the largest population of elephants. Somebody should research that and why we've been able to do that and the rest of Southern Africa hasn't. Now, that's something to be researched. Meet Kokitso Mukodi, or Koki. Passionate, committed. And she would like the stories of her land to be told by her people. The way I see the world of storytelling around Africa is the future of it definitely lies in the voices of the Africans, which is, hasn't been highlighted and celebrated for too long. There's only so many stories you can tell about a lion. There's only so many stories you can tell about an elephant. But how many millions of Africans are there on this continent? And each and every one of us has a voice and a story to share. And it's time. It is the time. You are listening to Wild Basil, the podcast that tells the stories of some heroes that are changing the narrative of a region. Well, I live in the gateway to the Okavango Delta, which is a town called Maung. And that's where our operations essentially are. And that's where I have made my home with my daughter. If you can imagine the Okavango Delta being a hand that is reaching down, which is quite iconic. I drive all the way to the very top, which is like the thinnest part of the hand. And we cross over into a place that feels very different from the regular Botswana that most people will know. And I spent a good two hours driving to the village that I choose to work with teachers at. So the area that I work in is kind of dry. It's in the delta, but it's still it's dry. It's not as close to the river as, as one might expect. And it's desert-like, even when you're in the delta. Um, there's a lot of um, beautiful smells. Wild sage is something that stands out when you're walking around the bush out there. When you step onto some of the plants, you can just, the smells excrete into your face and you just feel a sense of, it's like a medicine. It's like walking through an indigenous medicine cabinet and it always just makes me feel really, really good. In the north of the country, water flowing from the highlands of Angola takes the shape of a hand that never reaches the ocean on the other side of the continent. When winter floods reaches Botswana, the permanent marches and seasonal floodplains of over 10,000 square kilometers can be seen all the way from the moon. It's Africa's largest intact watershed. This UNESCO World Heritage Site is a home of thousands of unique species of flora and fauna and sustenance to a million people, including indigenous people whose community line the rivers and dot the delta. If you go there, you'll never really come back from it. It's one of those places where you feel like you are at the beginning of all things. There was a time that all the region maybe gave that feeling. But then history came along. Um, how can I put this without being overly political, but I'm just going to go for it. That's Koki. She will tell it to you straight, regardless of if you want to hear it or not. Before the West came, part of our traditional ways of conserving was not to finish everything. You know, when I was in the Bushman area that I was in, the Bukakwe, 
San of the Okavango, you know, they, they were telling me stories that even when they went hunting, they would choose which is the weakest one and they would leave the strongest animals and leave those that would thrive, you know, because they were only selecting you know, hunting for food. Not for anything else, not for sport, but just to eat. But they were always conserving. You know, they were always striking a balance. Um, and then hunting came into play. And, and, and not our type of hunting. We hunt for food. The other hunting where people put heads of animals on their, on their walls. And that kind of disturbed the traditional way of doing things. Um, bringing in money, alcohol, all these other payments for hunting. And that was in the 1800s. Um, and you'd have the English, the South Africans, um, or whatever... Hunting elephants and lions, and, and, and that became a whole new wave of, of doing things in, in, in Botswana. And so anyway, a couple of years later, we get independence. We still have these protected areas. We continue protecting because we still have that British protectorate interests. It kind of helped that our first president married an English woman. So there was always that interest from the English or the British to... Um, how's our elephants are doing well in Africa? They've never belonged to us, in a sense. You know, they've always been somebody else's or somebody else was benefiting from them besides us. And we were just in charge of making sure that the stocks were there for somebody else to come and enjoy. Conserving biodiversity while simultaneously seeking to use it for humanity's need is a huge challenge, which some suggest is not possible. In an effort to help answer one of the biggest questions in conservation, it can be helpful to look at where we come from. That is often what Koki does. I think because it was never incepted by local indigenous Botswana, this ideal of protection and this ideal of tourism, it's always been the interests of other people. So it wasn't important for the education of these wild spaces to be for the Botswana. So yeah, it was there were some selfish interests in, in some of the conservation um, activities or conservation decisions that were made. Um, selfish interests of certain leaders and their friends who have benefited hugely from the tourism area and the, and the hunting over the years. And then, you know, leadership changed. And current leadership is more in tune with what the, the human side of, of things as opposed to the, you know, the wildlife side of conservation and protecting the people as much as the animals. You know, we have the biggest population of elephants. Why is that? Why have the rest of Southern Africa not a, enabled their elephants to stay in their respective countries? And for that, we need to be respected and we need to be applauded because we have actually been able to maintain these large stocks of elephants for the rest of Southern Africa. And so, I mean, it's a very cloudy topic, <laughs> but I personally believe that it's been a somewhat deliberate move to keep the local person undereducated when it comes to issues of conservation and development, um, because it best suits certain pockets of society to have that power. Our continued use of biodiversity to improve our well-being is sadly all too often in conflict with our efforts to conserve it. Historically, in Botswana, you know, before Western education came in, education was something that was 
it was information that was passed on from generation to generation orally. You know, we don't have books. Um, we would talk around a fire and talk about our elders would tell us experiences. And that's something that still kind of exists, uh, you know, um, not as much anymore because of, of tablets and phones and smartphones. But, you know, when you go deeper into, into these rural areas, you still find those kind of uh, communities of people sitting around a fire. But, uh, you know, education is a huge part of what I have committed my life to. Because of the privileges that I had in my education, I had a private education throughout. I had the, the luxury of going to university. I've had the privilege of traveling. I've had the privilege of going outside of the country to go and study. And my dream is for every young person to have those opportunities. More than the wild, it's about local knowledge and bespoke solutions. Koki is working on this quest and would like to open the way to others. How did she get there? I grew up in Gaborone, which is quite a small city compared to many African cities. Um, I was raised by uh, my grandparents, um, who uh, my mom had me young, so she was still studying. And so I had the privilege of being the only granddaughter and the only child at home for many, many years. And so quite, I was quite spoiled. And I went to a private school in a very close-knit community with civil servant parents and an educator as a grandmother. And it was, it was you know, um, a lot of concrete. Yes, lots of some green spaces. I never really explored wildlife within the city. I, I can't say that. But my first ever wild experience was going to my grandfather's cattle post with him. And that's where he kept his cattle. But there were always the sounds at night of jackals and the sounds of, of, of strange things at night, nocturnal animals. That was always a curiosity in me of what is that and how do I hear it again, you know. And that was my grandfather's way of teaching me something that he didn't have or I didn't have the privilege of having. But tourist activities have always been considered to be more of a Western um, luxury. And so obviously my grandfather broke the mold by exposing us to going out within our country and, and exploring things that are different. And, you know, that kind of continued edging my curiosity. My mom married an explorative person who loves spending time in the bush. He's from England. So again, um, he had this Western approach to enjoying wildlife and to enjoying tourism activities. And we've, I'm just very lucky to have been immersed in a family that has exposed me to exploring that side of my personality. And yet, she was on for the surprise of her life. Until I was in university, I barely knew about the Delta. And that's quite embarrassing. And by that, I, w I felt quite shortchanged when I finally did come out to, to, to work. My first uh, experience, besides when I was five, and I, I barely have that memory when my grandfather took me through, um, was when I was 22 and I dropped out of university and a friend of mine had just said, listen, there's a job in the Delta at a camp. And I was like, what? Camp? Delta? What is that? And I literally, you know, it took me all night to travel to the north of the country, met, went, came into a town that I didn't even know existed. I mean, I knew there was a Maung, but I thought it was like a tiny little village, but it was actually quite big and quite diverse and had, it has a, had a running industry. But still, many people back in the south, which is where I'm from, it was a foreign land. There was something that they couldn't even relate to, they couldn't even imagine. When I finished high school, um, I was a part of the last group that did national service in Botswana. And so that meant I moved away from home and I actually worked for the wildlife department, which is why I actually latched on to the idea of wild. And I spent a year running around the bush, unclogging water pumps for elephants and just 
being a wild child and there was a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, went to university. You know, it's, it's a story that we all are familiar with, partied a lot, experimented a lot, just, you know, didn't care much for myself and my well-being. And so, you know, I was kind of lost and I didn't have a purpose. I didn't know what I was doing. I I found myself in some dangerous situations. And so it was very important to to go through that. And so the Delta gave me a sense of difference. I can jump in a car and drive for hours and hours and hours and look for animals. And that for me was fun. I didn't have to be doing it drunk. I didn't have to be, you know, uh, at a bar all the time or looking for a party or looking for a good time. I've been pleased to see over the years a lot of young people taking a leap similar to mine and packing their bags and moving out of Haburoni and coming up north for a sense of something else, you know. (laughs) Koki had just discovered a magical place. There are no words for it. One of the holy grails of conservation. That discovery and the realization that she didn't know what was in her own backyard would be a spark later. But one more twist before we get there. Literally, on the dance floor. When I was doing my national service, I spent three months going to high schools with one some of the wildlife officers and they would be teaching young people about wildlife and wildlife encounters and wildlife safety. And I didn't realize until now that that was actually a moment when I realized that that's something that I enjoyed because when I was young, I was closer to the high school kids age and I was able to share with them something that was relevant to them. By then, there was no opportunities in higher education to study tourism or to study anything that could feed into that. I didn't do any science at school because I was always afraid of science. I'd always considered it to be for the smart kids. And I've always loved seeing the reaction of people when I tell them, when I teach them about the Delta, when I teach them about animals, when I teach them about something. And that kind of was the beginning of where I am now. It took quite a while and I needed to go through all the motions, each and every moment, bad, good, whatever. I needed to go through every single step of life that I went to to get here, to get the full perspective. Wilderness cannot be explained. You need to let it in and feel it. Koki saw the open door and went in. When I I started working in the bush in the middle of nowhere and I was just in awe, but I felt a sense of belonging because I could use the little skills that I already had. I spoke pretty good English, so that helped. And I was keen to learn and I was eager to learn. And so I was able to go back home every time I went on holiday. I'd try and teach. I'd tell people where I'd been and they were like, where? Who? You know? And so to this day, people are still kind of detached from from the opportunities of the Okavango Delta. I mean, there's more and more a presence. People are coming and doing There's a lot of domestic tourism now. People are more open to traveling. But it's not necessarily for the wild spaces. It's more for the fun. I mean, people call Maung the Miami of Botswana. It's a place where people can come and enjoy and be a, go on a boat, go on Mokoro. So... There's a lot more of a movement from, you know, that, that young people are coming to Maung as opposed to going into immersing themselves deeper into the wild spaces. Um, so there's a lot of education opportunities there and exposing different aspects of the Delta to the whole country. Koki worked for years trying to open this magical door to others. She was committed 
to enable her fellow Botswanans to discover what was in their backyards as well and to feel the enchantment. But this was not working. All the visits and no magic. The reason I started it was because of the of the declining academic results of the students in that part of the area. It was very sad for me to see that the students in the richest natural resource that we have were the ones that were performing the worst. And for me, that doesn't make sense. You know, um, I don't know if I'll ever make it make sense, but I'm going to do everything in my power to try and make it right and connect the dots. The Educator Expeditions essentially started in 2018. Um, and, and prior to that, I'd been working with a tourism operator that does some conservation work. And I started their community outreach division. And for seven years, I took uh, groups of children into um, the luxury camps to kind of open their experiences up and to, you know, show them something different and animals that they wouldn't have otherwise been able to come so close to, animals that they've always been afraid of, they were able to enjoy and just watch. And the purpose behind that was to obviously create uh, conservationists of the future. But... For many years, I was very aware that when they go back home, they go back home. They go back to their normal way of life, their regular struggles. Um, these three days away are just a holiday, but at the end of the day, they still have to go and deal with the challenges of walking through herds of elephants or being susceptible to human-wildlife conflict of, of lions and leopards and you know, that's their regular life. And kids always get messages and, and stories like that. And there were many other organizations that were doing similar work. And so um, I went away for a year. I went and spent a year in New York at the Mandela Washington Fellowship. And I had like a, an epiphany. The teachers themselves don't have programs that sensitize them to the environment. And particularly the teachers in the Delta don't come from the Delta. Very few of them come from this area. Lots of them come from the central part of the Botswana or the southern part of the Botswana where they never get an opportunity to see any kind of wildlife. And so I came up with this concept of having an educator expeditions to sensitize educators specifically into the wildlife spaces where they work at. We have had many challenges of a big school teacher turnaround. Many teachers, as soon as they get into these rural areas, want to immediately leave because it's so far, because it's so remote, because it doesn't have the resources that most urban villages or urban schools would have. And so over the years, as I've been visiting these villages, there's always a new face, there's always a new teacher, there's always somebody new to, to teach. So the part of my educator expedition is to garnish these schools with these practical resources so that the kids are able to have a better chance of doing better in their overall um, academic results. The educator expeditions that I am uh, a project leader of are essentially opening up the curiosity of the educators. You know, many of the kids that I worked with in the past, which is why I work with teachers now, completely get what nature is and what it, it serves its purpose. You know, the kids that, that are in these, in these landscapes are so connected with their um, indigenous heritage and their uh, cultural identity and their environmental identity. They are the kind of kids that will go and tell you the, the, the medicinal purposes of almost every tree in their backyards and their teachers can't, don't really appreciate that. And so what my educator expeditions do is that we take immerse these teachers into spaces that they would normally not be availed to 
in order to connect them better with their students, you know, they need to also have an appreciation of the indigenous identity of their students so that in the classroom it becomes less difficult to explain certain subject matter. So having um, the community involved in the education of their own students and their own kids is very, very important. And it's also important for the teachers to appreciate the cultural identity and the cultural knowledge that the people of the very villages that they're teaching have. Like they say, it takes a village to raise a child. And I'm literally trying to, to bridge those gaps to create these communities to raise these children. Instead of having the modernity fighting the traditional, Koki found a way to have one complementing the other, and with it, to strengthen interregional and intergenerational relationships. She found a way to open the door to the enchantment of the bush and of the delta that still mesmerizes her. What's important and the most exciting part of our expedition or our backyard expedition is the nature walks that we take with the teachers. We literally take them in the backyard of their villages, which are some wild spaces that have elephants and porcupines and all sorts of wildlife. And these teachers don't even know that that's right in their literal backyards. But we also take the local community, local elders, um, local social workers, local young people who have dropped out of school and are looking for a purpose in life. So we collect these people together and we take them on long walks and we share our experiences about nature. This was our opportunity to kind of bridge the gap of, of between the teachers and the community to say, you guys can lean on each other. As a researcher and educator, Koki believes in the evidence and that data comes before and shapes policy. She wants this data to be local. She wants this shape to look Botswanan. To do that, the research agenda needs to be created and designed by and with local knowledge. It is still a challenge. Academically, we don't have enough Botswana researchers, for instance, to be studying the Delta. A lot of the researchers that are around the Delta and doing studies in the Delta are expatriates and from other parts of the world. And so one of my other missions is to kind of give opportunities to young Botswana to actually be a part of that, those solution making, but also add their own Botswana flavor. Um, they have their own unique way of, of researching and they might find um, unique um, things to research that others might not have been able to tap into. There was no scientist that would look like me. There was no representation of any sort that would inspire the next generation. They are there, but they're in their very small. There's a small population of scientists in, coming out of Botswana, and most of them don't even work in the field. So it didn't satisfy me that there wasn't enough representation. And so my mission was to go and, 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 and inspire the educator that is going to inspire the next generation of scientists, engineers, indigenous engineers, indigenous scientists, because they have that special flavor, that special touch of knowing their landscape. And I can only imagine how by, by merging the indigenous science and the modern science together, what the possibilities could be. I can't even imagine. And I am my grandparents' wildest dream. They wouldn't have imagined that anybody in their bloodline would ever be a National Geographic explorer or be on a podcast and do all these things. I want to know that two generations from me, there'll be young Botswana doing things that are out of control or beyond my imagination. 
I'll just give you a quick example. My sisters right now are going to university. One of them is going to Melbourne, Australia. The other one is going to UCLA. They're both studying um, environmental type um, studies. The one is studying uh, environmental science and biology and the other one is going to study immunology and virology. Now, that is my wild dream already. My sisters are studying things that I never even thought that we were capable of studying. So it's experiences and I want my grandchildren to be able to have the choice of doing just about anything they want, to have the education to a well-rounded education to make those choices and education, not just in a formal sense, but to travel, to see the world, to be a part of a bigger world and something that is bigger than them. I'd like to see my grandchildren take a chance on themselves and go and live in other parts of the world if they so choose. It would be cool if I had a grandchild who was a marine biologist, even though I'm from the desert, you know. Um, but I just want my grandchildren to know that their grandmother was a part of opening opportunities up for them not just for them, but for their peers. And I, I would like to see them take control of the problems and make solutions that are, are bespoke to who we are as a people, as opposed to universal solutions on who we are as a special people in this world. If we are the product of our nurture, Koki was born and raised in a very fertile ground. I've been very, very lucky that I was raised by feminists, if I can put it that way. Even my grandfather was a feminist. I don't think he had a choice because he has three daughters. Um, and then I was his first grandchild and I'm a girl. And and so, you know, my grandfather has always taught me and my mom and her sisters, you know, that we are capable of being and doing everything, which is why my family has achieved as much as they have. My grandfather was also an ambassador. And, and was exposed to the Western world and exposed my mom and her sisters to the West when they were young. So that ideal of possibility has always been a part of my existence. I know I'm capable. I know I'm worthy and all of that. And so when I came out here, I, I think the only challenge that I can say I've had as a female leader in this space has been that historically, when people think of conservationists and explorers, the first thing they think of is a white man. And so just demystifying that when I introduce myself to people for the first time and I tell them what I do and who I am, the first thing they kind of want to know is who's my boss. And they're looking for a white man behind me or that I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say some. And that's been a bit difficult having to kind of be stern and be, you know, sure about who I am in that sense, knowing that I'm capable and I'm, and I'm fabulous and all of that. But it's, it's sad that even in this day and age, people um, in the world of conservation don't realize the power that a woman, uh, a woman of color in this space has um, in terms of influence, in terms of mentorship, in terms of healing an, an area and adding that aspect of education. I mean, up until now, nobody ever thought about assisting teachers. It took me because I am a part of the landscape, because I do listen, because I feel, because I have an intuition, because I have all of these emotions. I'm able to look at other things that the white man won't. <laughs> Wild Basil, a podcast produced by Mover. Written by Luiz Guimarães Scherer Navarro and Martin Kennan. Music by Carson Mucavelli. Historical advisor, Stephanie Erdang. 
Scientific Advisor, Ghislain Rib. Recording, Carson Studio Maputo. Directed by Martin Cannon. Funded by AFD. Find us on movamoz.co.mz.